Hello. <laughs> Welcome back to My Little Tonys. The podcast where we give you the tea on the Tonys. <laughs> uh, I'm Anna. And I'm Tim. And we're back to the 90s. Yeah, back to the 90s. Today we're talking about 1994, a very weak year for new musicals, but a very strong year for revivals. Yes. So this episode, we're going to be talking about three out of four of the new musicals because they all sort of have thematic similarities. And then next time we'll do an episode kind of devoted to the revivals. So these were broadcast on June 12th, 1994. And they... The hosts were kind of odd this year. It was hosted by Anthony Hopkins and Amy Irving. Amy Irving was the big surprise snub this year because she was starring in Arthur Miller's new play called Broken Glass, and everyone thought she was going to get nominated for Best Actress, and she did not, but she still shows up to host, which is big of her, I guess. Yeah, that is kind of a weird... It harkens back to the Dustin Hoffman debacle in yeah, 1984. But Dustin Hoffman did not host that year. That would have been <laughs> the equivalent. And then Anthony Hopkins is her co-host. And I was trying to figure out why he was there. I was like, oh, he must have been in a play. But he his only Broadway appearance was in the original production of Equus in 1975, which he didn't even get a nomination for. So I was looking it up. And in 1993, he had had kind of like a big year for his career he had just been nominated for an oscar for um the remains of the day Uh i still don't know why he was there though yeah i think that through my childhood in the 90s i like knew that he was like a huge star he was like your go-to huge (laughs) star of the day that i feel like you know signified class and dignity i guess that i mean i guess if you're trying to get in some viewers you could do worse than anthony hopkins but i thought they were very like touchy-feely through this show in a bizarre way like when they first come out he's kind of like stroking her hip and stuff and they're like (laughs) holding hands throughout the entire time it was kind of odd yeah especially because he's coming hot off uh silence of the lambs (laughs) (laughs) another thing about this show is that i noticed for the speeches they were really like playing people off very quickly they were giving people like 30 seconds to talk before they started bringing in the orchestra and the show only ran about an hour and 40 minutes. I think, you know, partially because there weren't that many performances, but they were like really trying to, I feel like we could have even done this in one episode if we had wanted to, but I'm glad we're not forcing ourselves to do that. Mm-hmm. Also, the awards take place at the Gershwin Theater, and I feel like after the 2015 and 2005, I'm really missing Radio City Music Hall. I know, <laughs> it's, it's hard to come back from Radio City. There were a lot of, I mean, I feel like there are always technical issues, but I really noticed them this time. I think the biggest whoopsie was when, um, I don't know if you saw this, but when Nicholas Heitner wins Best Director for Carousel, they start, the orchestra starts playing Beauty and the Beast, Mm -hmm. and then they kind of segue into If I Loved You, and then they just like stop, and they're like, okay, we're just gonna start (laughs) over again. Nicholas Heitner Carousel. And I mean, maybe they thought, well, let's just, let's read the best musical nominees. Leading the pack, there was Passion with 10 nominations and four wins. Beauty and the Beast, or as they called it, Disney's Beauty and the Beast. Yes, that's a very important distinction. (laughs) Yeah, with nine nominations and one win. 
A Grand Night for Singing with two nominations and zero wins, and Cyrano with four nominations and zero wins. I wonder if they thought, so Beauty and the Beast only walked away with Best Costumes, which I think is correct, Mm -hmm. Um, but I wonder if they were preparing for it to do better than it did. Like, it seemed like they were all prepped for it to win for directing, at least. Yeah, no, I think that in a year like this, who really knows? I think that it was, like, no surprise that it was this show-off between Passion and Beauty and the Beast, but I wonder what people were kind of betting their money on. Yeah, so there were only five eligible new musicals this season. It was a very, very sparse season that even A Grand Night for Singing, which is a Rodgers and Hammerstein review that like I think started as not like a dinner theater thing, but kind of <laughs> like almost the equivalent. And uh, that's really like grasping at straws for something to nominate. I know, like when it gets nominated for Best Book, I'm like, really? Is I know. a review nominated <laughs> for Best Book? So I found... A couple of things that are similar to what we had for the 98 episode where they had a couple of different essays about the season as it ended. To dispense with the easy ones first, only two awards seem sure, with those questioned expressing unanimity. They are Best Actress in a Musical, which ought to go to Donna Murphy for Passion, and Best Featured Actress in a Musical, which should go to Audra Ann McDonald for Carousel. Beyond those, however, the debate was on. Certainly the loudest laments of the year involved the dearth of solid new musicals and the inability of plays to attract audiences to stay alive, and the same whininess was reflected in the comments of voters this week. In the best musical category, neither of the leading contenders, Passion, the Stephen Sondheim-James Lapine collaboration, or Disney's Beauty and the Beast stirred much loyalty. The one being seen largely as an artfully ambitious failure, the other an advertisement for merchandise and theme parks that aims low and hits the mark. Whichever wins best musical is also likely to win per book and score, although the embarrassing possibility exists that one could win for parts and the other for the whole. I voted for passion, but I have to tell you I hated it, one person said. If it wins, and it probably will, it'll be bad for the theater because people will go to see it and be disappointed. But I don't think anyone wants to vote for Beauty and the Beast because it's not what theater is about. It's a cartoon. It does seem to be true that Disney's high visibility, very expensive entry onto Broadway has stirred some resentment among theater lifers. Another factor that may swing some votes to passion is that it needs the economic boost the Tony can provide in order to stay open. Beauty needs no such boost. It is currently outselling even the Phantom of the Opera. On the other hand, several devotees of the man who wrote Company and Sweeney Todd said they could not bring themselves to vote for what they viewed as second-tier Sondheim. As one person put it, I was going to vote for Passion, but I went back to see it again, and it wasn't good enough. Then, too, road presenters make up a significant block of voters, and as one person interviewed put it, they frequently vote with their future wallet in mind. It's unlikely that Passion will ever be a road favorite. Uh, That's actually interesting, the last part about the people who are not necessarily in the New York theater who are, you know, voting with the interest of what's going to be a success on the road. Because A Grand Night for Singing had already closed at this point, but they were just rehearsing for the tour production. So it's like, I wonder if their nomination, in a sense, was to just kind of ramp up interest in what's going to be on the road. I think that's definitely possible. And I also think that it was a fuck you to the best little whorehouse goes public (laughs) because there was an article about announcing the nominations and apparently the announcement was delayed for three hours, which is crazy that they were deliberating up until the point the announcement was supposed to happen. Like that seems like really bad planning. Especially when there are only five musicals to choose from. The reason for the delay was that the nominating committee found it difficult to find four worthy nominees in three musical categories, best new musical, best book, and best score, and requested that they be allowed to nominate only three. In two cases, best musical and best book, the Tony administration committee denied the request, and the nominators had to deliberate further to find fourth nominees in both categories. In addition 
to Beauty and the Beast and Passion, two tepidly received shows, A Grand Night for Singing and Cyrano, were nominated in each category. In the category of Best Original Score, the committee was allowed to restrict its nominations because the score of A Grand Night, a Rodgers and Hammerstein musical review at the roundabout, was not eligible. In all three categories, the nominators showed obvious disdain for the fifth eligible musical, The Best Little Whorehouse Goes Public, which received only one nomination overall for Dee Hody as Best Actress. So I think it can be seen both as a vote for Grand Night for Singing and a vote against Best Little Whorehouse. It's just so funny that they were like, please, please, can we only nominate three? That is painful. I think that like when there is this universal hate about something, it makes me a little uneasy, especially, you know, I think that Best Little Whorehouse is bad and unnecessary, but I don't think it's evil. No, I don't think, well, I mean, (laughs) we can get into that later. And also the Best Little Whorehouse opened one day before the eligibility for the Tonys ended so they really were trying to like sneak in there so this is from an article sort of reflecting on the season broadway season didn't exactly roar to a close this week three musicals opened but two Grease and the best little whorehouse goes public were more or less clobbered by the critics and disdained by many of the opening night invited guests passion stephen sondheim's much revised operetta-like show fared better but the reviews were for the most part measured and respectful rather than ebullient and the Blanche-esque talk afterward among many on Broadway was of the kindness of critics. Indeed, several people said this week that the reviews legitimized the show as a best musical candidate, which was needed, they said, because the only other real choice is Disney's Beauty and the Beast, whose presence is still resented among Broadway veterans. One producer, promised anonymity, even admitted this week that although he liked beauty very much, he wouldn't vote for it. At yesterday's Tony Administration Committee meeting, the beauty score was deemed eligible for a nomination on the ground that half of it was written specifically for the theater. Wouldn't it be amazing if Mr. Sondheim won for Best Musical and Disney for Best Score? It's possible. In any case, the 12-member Tony Nominating Committee, which is to announce its selections on Monday, is facing a poverty-stricken field of musicals. If the committee decides to select the usual menu of four nominees, two will have to be chosen from a Dutch import that overstayed its welcome and lost $8 million, Cyrano, (laughs) Rodgers and Hammerstein Review, whose score is not eligible for best score, A Grand Night for Singing, and the most universally reviled Broadway show in memory, Whorehouse. (laughs) So the opening number, they also, they really blew their load because they had so many amazing revivals this season and they just did an opening number montage, which will dissect next episode but they had all four revivals perform in the opening number which i think was a big mistake yes (laughs) because there were like barely any performances except something that surprised me that i did not remember is that they had a performance from the revival of showboat that was going to come next season which was which as we know was produced by garth drabinsky and live end and like knowing what i know now about them having them do this huge performance before they even were on Broadway is like a very Harvey Weinstein move. Like that's mm-hmm. the move of someone who was going to go to jail. Exactly. <laughs> like, that kind of hubris. Um, the one thing though that I will say about this opening number and in regards to the host is that I feel like Victor Garber playing his devil character would have been oh, absolutely. a better host. Yeah, so Beauty and the Beast, Disney's Beauty and the Beast opened... April 18th, 1994, and closed July 29th, 2007, after 5,461 performances. Music by Alan Menken, lyrics by Howard Ashman and Tim Rice, book by Linda Wolverton, directed by Robert Jess Roth, um, who I looked it up. He was only 31 when he directed this. Which, that's insane. Yeah, based on, uh, you know, the classic fairy tale Beauty and the Beast. And the synopsis is... 
The classic story tells of Belle, a young woman in a provincial town, and the Beast, who is really a young prince trapped under the smell, the spell, <laughs> trapped under the smell of an enchantress, <laughs> trapped under the spell of an enchantress. If the Beast can learn to love and be loved, the curse will end, and he will be transformed into his former self. But time is running out. If the Beast does not learn his lesson soon, he and his household will be doomed for all eternity. And I mean, something we were talking about before this is how interesting it is that this and Passion and to some extent Cyrano were all in the same season, like grappling with this Beauty and the Beast theme. Mm-hmm. It's very different takes on on similar themes. So like, wait a minute. Like, so why is the Beast, like the Beast is made into a beast because he doesn't help the ugly old woman who ends up being a witch. Yes. Just because she was ugly is why he doesn't want to help her. Yeah, and I think just because he's selfish and he doesn't, you know, know how to redistribute his... Uh, his resources. His resources <laughs> to the people who need them. He's I hoarding see. them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, once again, we're encountering me, the Disney kid, and you who was really not. Well, it's actually so funny because listening to the recording, the songs are, like, somewhere, like, deep in my it's- blood. <laughs> yeah, you really, you can't avoid them so i mean we've talked about this a little bit with the lion king i liked the lion king but beauty and the beast was like one of my super super favorites and as i have also mentioned it was my very first broadway show that i saw um you remember who was playing bell was it a celeb cast it was 1990 it was probably 1998 i would assume it was not a celebrity (laughs) at that point i don't think it was tony braxton but the one thing i really remember I think I was probably, and like listening to the album, I was like, I was probably really bored by all these new songs because it really suffers from that thing where you have to like take a 90 minute movie and kind of like pad it out into two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of the songs are super boring. <laughs> <laughs> and they actually have in the New York Times review, they reference the effect of the of the beast turning into the prince at the end that is still so vividly stuck in my mind 20 years later. So, you know, score one for you, Beauty and the Beast. They describe it. And if you thought the chandelier crashing to the stage and the Phantom of the Opera was something, wait until the beast, presumably dead, rises up from the castle floor, floats 10 feet or so into space, then starts to spin like a human propeller. Before the spinning is done and you've caught your breath, he has somehow shed all things beastly and become a dashing prince again. Take that, Siegfried and Roy. <laughs> and something that I actually thought was very uh, cute was, like, going back. There was a lot of, like, hubbub around this being, which I didn't really realize. This was really the first Broadway show that was, like, for children. Yes. And Disney changed the rule that had been in place where uh, up until then where it was no children under five allowed in the Broadway theater. And John Simon's review was, like, they should have changed it so nobody over five was allowed in the theater. <laughs> but in an interview with Anne Holdward who was the costume designer and the only Tony winner, she said, Some people are shocked at the number of children in the audience, and it's not something I had anticipated, but it has proven to be such a good experience for them. Hopefully they'll go see other things. There is potential for growing a larger theater community. I hope so anyway. And look at me now. Yeah, so it does pay off. (laughs) I was reading someplace that people were like, these children have no theater etiquette. (laughs) I think that, like, this is definitely a show you can expect to um, hear people singing along. (laughs) Yeah. And also, this was something I didn't realize until now is that this was the most expensive Broadway show of all time at that point. And they never released any official numbers, but the initial budget was $12 but... 
the sort of informal estimates put it closer to 80, 18, not 80, 18 to 20 million dollars. Wow. Yeah. From our musicals ourselves. Well, he kind of like points to Cats as being like the first game changer. That makes um, sense. That, you know, brought in this like new family, like pandering to children. But of Beauty and the Beast, he writes... With the squadrons of animation artists, special effects experts, and computer specialists that the Disney studio employ for both animated and live-action films, not to mention the legion of designers and technicians who make the magic happen in the Disney theme parks, no American outfit was ever better equipped to mount Broadway techno musicals than the Disney company. And mount them they did starting with Beauty and the Beast in 1994. The challenge for the team's design tech staff was to transform an animated feature film into a stage musical with living, breathing actors. New York Times critic David Richards points out that whereas much of the movie's charm was in having inanimate objects look and behave like people, translating it to the stage was a sort of reverse anthropomorphism, wherein the musical prides itself on how cleverly people can be made into objects. But I mean, I think that is worth being proud of yeah. <laughs> because that seems like, you know, listening to them talk about developing it, that seems like the big thing they were trying to overcome was the challenge of how are we going to fix, how are we going to make the scale of this not seem crazy when we have like a fully grown man playing a candelabra, like <laughs> who's the same size as the beast. And they talk about how they came up with this concept that actually they ended up adopting for the really terrible live action remake that they just did where instead of being immediately turned into objects, they're sort of slowly becoming more object-like as the show goes on. So, like, their costumes kind of evolve over the course of the show to be more object-like. And they also talk about... They make a big deal about the candelabra, like he actually has candles, in, mm -hmm. or, not, or not candles, but he actually has fire in it, like Mrs. Potts can pour real tea, Cogsworth has like an actual working pendulum in his stomach. The technical element of it is pretty interesting. Mm -hmm. The response from the theater community at large to Disney being here is very, and I sort of was confused about the timeline when we were talking about The Lion King, but mm -hmm. actually their acquisition of the new Amsterdam theater was at the same time as Beauty and the Beast was happening. It just oh. like took them a few years to renovate to it. renovate it. So like everyone was really mad that they were, that they were coming in. And one of the reasons was because producers had been trying to get Disney to invest in their shows for years. And Disney was like, no, when we do it, it's going to be our, our own thing. Like we're only going to get involved if it's going to be on our terms. And people really didn't like that. Yeah, ugh. especially because Disney owes its animated film revival to, you know, the theater community at large. Exactly. And the part of the inspiration for Beauty and the Beast to make Beauty and the Beast their first stage musical was that in 1991, Frank Rich wrote in his year-end roundup that the best Broadway musical score of 1991 was that written by Alan Menken and Howard Ashman for the Disney animated movie Beauty and the Beast. So it was Frank Rich, who was, you know, the drama critic for the Times, who was planting those seeds. And sort of the shadow of this is that Howard Ashman died of, you know, AIDS complications, I think, a few months before the movie was even released. Mm -hmm. And you can really tell the difference between his lyrics and stupid Tim Rice's <laughs> lyrics. And that was really such a huge loss. So I found an article, like a satirical piece called Disney Does Broadway, imagining what 
Times Square is going to look like once Disney has taken taken it over. Mm-hmm. And I just wanted to read a little bit of it. Welcome to Disney's Times Square, the almost all-new theme park where you and your family can safely and hygienically experience a colorful slice of urban Americana, largely free of jarring smells and long harangues by angry evangelists of indeterminate faith. Enjoy the sights and sounds of the happiest place on West 42nd Street, secure in the knowledge that Disney's Times Square is separated from the rest of New York City by the world-famous Avenue of the America's Moat, a marvel of engineering and zoning variances you won't want to miss and you know it goes on uh, in that vein <laughs> you know it partially came true it still smells pretty bad there yeah. <laughs> there's an article with or an interview with Susan Egan who um, originated the role of Belle she, it was her Broadway debut and she's talking about the reception of mm-hmm. the show we were hated hated in New York City I'm just a girl who needed a job but everyone seemed to be taking it out on me It was the fact that Disney was producing something. All these Broadway producers had wooed Disney's money for years, and Disney said all along if they did a Broadway show, they were going to do it themselves. It was very much a boys' club of the same five families that produced Broadway shows for a hundred years, and Disney shook that up. We were the laughing stock, but Be Our Guest was the commercial for the Tony Awards that year. I get it. I'm a Sondheim snob, too. I loved Passion. There was room for both of us. We're going to get the kids that will ultimately buy tickets for Passion years from now, so I think we all belong there. I'm glad I was part of that experience because it didn't allow me to become a theater snob and it grounded me. Damn. Yeah. Yeah, And she was like, at the time she was auditioning for Belle. She was like, I had never seen the movie. So I was like kind of doing it my way. (laughs) Isn't that always the story? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, of course you didn't, sister. (laughs) Um, But she was also, the day that she got the role of Belle, she was like, still in callbacks for Carousel. So she could have had a very different career. Yeah. She went on to voice Meg in Hercules, so she her Disney relationship continued. I think that one of the strangest things that I actually do remember, and this was probably around the time that you saw it, was that they had added a new song in the middle of the run. Yeah, for Tony Braxton. For Tony Braxton. That's like some Frank Wildhorn shit. <laughs> I <know. laughs> and I read that it was literally like, they only got her to sign on by being like, we're going to write a new song for you. And then she did, and she was like, where's my new song? And they had to write it in like a day. Oh, my God. Going back to like the Beauty and the Beast theme, so the theme of this adaptation of it is, you know, like love can transform you, but the original going way, way back, like the purpose of Beauty and the Beast was to like get women prepared to be in arranged marriages and be like, he might be a beast, you don't know, but you know, you gotta just love him and maybe then he'll be nice to you. Uh, yuck. (laughs) Yeah, I think that as a story, it's not like a fairy tale that really offers a lot. I do think that like there is a lot of magic to the Jean Cocteau film version of it, but I think that that being translated into the Disney animated film being translated onto the stage, like I think it kind of falls a little flat. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I personally think the movie still really holds up. I just went to, at um, Lincoln Center a few years ago, they did, I guess it must have been like the 25th anniversary screening, and they like had the whole cast there, and Alan Menken came out and played the piano while Angela Lansbury sang Beauty and the Beast, and everybody cried. So I still, I'm still on board with the movie. You know, it's tough to translate the energy and tone of animation onto the stage, and I think just like throwing a bunch of money at it. Like, you have to do something like Julie Taymor and, like, really kind of reconceive it from the ground up. Mm -hmm. Before we started recording, you kind of 
referenced uh, Disney on Ice, which I think this this is kind of like a just at ice skates mm-hmm. kind of thing. I actually did see the Beauty and the Beast on Ice. Oh, really? Probably around the time that you saw the <laughs> production. The guy who played the Beast, Terrence Mann, who is, has had a very legendary career, first of all, must have some kind of fetish for wanting to perform in a lot of fur because he was also in the original cast of Cats. Um, also researching this was the first time I realized Terrence Mann is not British, which is something I had always assumed. <laughs> it's a very British name. Yeah, and it also seems like a name that like an alien would make up to when he's trying to pass as human. Like, my name is Terrence Man, <laughs> To transform into the Beast, he had six separate pieces of foam latex on his face, and in full costume, he wears a chest piece, thigh padding, a rear end enhancer, and a haunch extender. And it takes the actor an hour and a half to don his makeup and costume before every show, and the latex pieces were not reusable. Eek. I think we can maybe transition to the performance, because I had a lot of questions about that performance, and I think about half of it had to have been pre-recorded. Yeah, no, definitely. They do almost the whole show. Yeah, I feel like when we were talking about The Wiz, I felt guilty <laughs> for being like, well, can they just do the whole show? But they do it. They definitely do, and they start with the prologue, which is narrated by Anthony Hopkins, which is very funny. They yeah. like made him do the whole thing. One winter's night, an old beggar woman came to the castle and offered him a single rose in return for shelter from the bitter cold. The prince, repulsed by her haggard appearance, sneered at the gift and turned the old woman away. The witch is frightening. Yeah, and she like throws a fireball, which is another one of the fun effects. Mm -hmm. So they do that, then they do Be Our Guest. No, they do, first they do Gaston's new song. I can see that we will share all that love implies. We shall be the perfect pair, rather like my thighs. And then they do Be Our Guest. So all of the stuff featuring the Beast must be pre-recorded because there's no way they're going to make him put all that stuff on and then take it right off. And then he does appear as the prince at the end. So then they have him singing If I Can't Love Her, which is like one of the new songs they added. And they did the thing that they also did for The Lion King where, like, the new songs are expanded out of themes from the score from the original movie. So they're not 100% new. They're kind of, like, familiar in some ways. Mm-hmm. And then they all come on at the end and do Beauty and the Beast. And uh, he's the prince. And everyone is like, all right, I'll buy a ticket for that. That's what I thought it would look like. It looks very expensive. Mm-hmm. Oh, also, they gave him, like, a, like an eight-pack. In his costume. Yes. <laughs> it reminded me of the Into the Woods wolf where they gave him like a huge dong. Mm-hmm. Like you got to make this animal guy sexy. <laughs> yeah, no, I think that it's a totally fine performance. I wonder like what the Broadway veterans in the cast, if they got any pushback from the community. Like, you know, your Gary Beaches, your I mean, Mrs. I think Potts. like a job's a job, you yeah. know. I think it was probably more towards Disney mm-hmm. than about the people who are doing the it. Actual, yes. And uh, there were rumors in the New York Times, uh, there was a lot of Times coverage, obviously, and there was a rumor that no one could change a single moment of the show without the express permission of Jeffrey Katzenberg, chairman of Walt Disney Studios. The overwhelming feeling is that the experts who are there were not allowed to do their jobs, which uh, 
kind of makes sense to me. That that's what the vibe was there. Mm-hmm. And also something I found out that I didn't know that around this time, Disney was trying, was in the process of trying to buy like 2,000 acres of Virginia land to make like a historical theme park based around Civil War battlegrounds. That is so scary. I know. And people were like, you can't do that. <laughs> <laughs> and it seems like it was totally forgotten about. So... The New York Times didn't like it. It got pretty bad reviews, but obviously it ran for forever. Even just this past year, in 2018, it was the number one musical performed in high schools. They just put out that list, Mm -hmm. Um, which means that a lot of poor young men have been wearing terrible homemade beast costumes. Yeah, I feel like I would love to see a compilation of I think there's a Tumblr uh, that has them. So thank you for your service, whoever is doing that. It had a marathon run, which I think, yeah, even when I was in middle school, there was like a field trip to go see it. I remember on the Disney Channel, Christy Carlson Romano um, stepped into the role as Belle and there was like a commercial on the Disney Channel. Yeah, Jamie Lynn Sigler played Belle. Um, They had a lot of fun stunt casting. I think something that they moved theaters, I guess, in 99-ish. They were like, oh, well, we can't fill this big theater anymore, so we just need a smaller one. Like, I, That's smart. It's funny that that is the rationale over, like, oh, we aren't filling the theater. Like, we should close. <laughs> I mean, it still ran for eight more years yes, afterwards. So. <laughs> There weren't that many um, dual presenters this year, but my dream threesome is former co-stars Bernadette Peters and Martin Short. Oh my god, that was, <laughs> there was some sexy energy in there. <laughs> it's weird because you don't really think of Martin Short as having chemistry with a lot of people, but he and Bernie were a good combo. Hello, my darling. Hello, my sweet. First of all, let me tell you that yes. you look absolutely gorgeous well, in that dress. Thank you. Isn't she? <laughs> and I can't believe you're wearing black. What a stretch. Speaking of stretch, isn't it amazing what they can do with a child's tuxedo? (laughs) (laughs) Also, you know, he and uh, old Steve Martin are such good friends, so I bet they had a couple of uh, crazy notes. (laughs) You know, it was the 70s. Yeah. Nobody knows what was happening. So they come out and present best book and best score, both to Passion, which is very cute that Bernadette is presenting and when... uh, Sondheim wins, he gives her like a really sweet hug and kiss. Aww. Well, yeah, I feel like they're just, they're serving the justice from 10 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) And then Passion performs right after that, which must have been fun for them. Let's talk about Passion, baby. Yeah, it's time. Let's talk about Fosca and Giorgio. First preview was March 24th, 1994, and it opened May 9th, 1994. So it had a really long preview period of 52 performances, and it closed January 7th, 1995 with a total of 280 performances, which makes it the shortest run for a best musical winner uh, of all time. Yes. And Beauty and the Beast ran for 22 times as long. (laughs) 
music and lyrics by Stephen Sondheim, book by James Lapine, directed by James Lapine, and it was based on Ettore Scola's film Passione d'Amore, which was adapted from the novel Fosca by Tarchetti. <laughs> I'm not going to try to say the rest of his name. Ignino Ugo Tarchetti. <laughs> And the synopsis is, a remote military outpost in 1863 Italy, a handsome army captain, separated from his beautiful but married mistress, is forced to reevaluate his beliefs about love when he becomes the object of the obsessive, unrelenting passions of Fosca, his colonel's plain, sickly cousin. So, I mean, going back to this Beauty and the Beast theme, and I know it wasn't up for Tony's this year, but like, if you compare it to like Andrew Lloyd Webber's take on the Beauty and the Beast theme, mm-hmm. uh, the Phantom of the Opera, it really shows the differences between like that's sort of the purest distillation of the differences between these two composers and like what is interesting to them and like what they are attracted to in a project. Yeah, this actually serves as like a very perfect foil to Phantom of the Opera. I didn't actually think of that. Yeah, it's kind of like a challenge on like a reality tv show where it's like here's your material <laughs> like you have two days make an outfit you it's got like... someone who is ugly and obsessive you <laughs> got two hot people a classic novel two hot people <laughs> <laughs> and you know one person's got to die at the end the kind of brief history of it is this is one of the few sondheim projects where he actually had the idea himself and sort of brought it to his collaborators and he saw um the movie in the early 80s and was totally blown away by it and he brought it to James Lapine and he was like I want to work on this and James Lapine was also interested in working on this project called Muscle about a bodybuilder and they were like maybe these two things can work together because they're both about like physical beauty and obsession Mm -hmm. so they were kind of developing them as one acts and Sondheim was like I don't really think I'm the right person to work on Muscle like you should work with William Finn on it and you know that obviously never happened so then they just kept developing passion into this one you know almost two hour one act so Mm -hmm. it is still a one act but it was a full night of theater. I think that there are a few shows of Sondheim's that people have controversial takes on, but I think that this might be appropriately called passion. I think people passionately love it or passionately hate it. Yeah, and this is one that I have definitely struggled with in the course of my Sondheim fandom. It kind of feels like I am Giorgio and passion is Fosca. (laughs) And it's like, why don't you love me? Like, I don't know. Leave me alone. (laughs) This one is actually pretty funny because it's like, if you look at it objectively, you would be like, this must have been something that didn't win any Tonys. But it just happened to be in the year where it was like, there wasn't really any competition and it took home everything. I think you can really see passions win as you know less of a vote for passion and more of a vote against disney and against what it represents to new york theater it's just very funny that passion happens to be the thing that uh is is rallying everybody because it is so peculiar yeah it's funny to see everyone rallying about a show that is about alienation and is also (laughs) extremely alienating but i love it yeah you know if you look at sondheim's body of work and you look at his totally iconic beloved shows that did not win best musical like follies you know sunday in the park with george into the woods and the fact that passion did (laughs) is so funny and like i feel like it really epitomizes his career it's like funny because i think because it you know ended up taking home the grand prize i think that people are like more willing to like 
be like, oh, it's one of Sondheim's problem shows. You know, I think it gets kind of the, like magnifying glass put over it. I think like what speaks to why I love Sondheim so much is that, you know, out of all of his troubled shows, they're all troubled in such different ways. Yeah. Thinking of someone like Frank Wildhorn, where it's like <laughs> literally all of his shows have the same problem. <laughs> it's like cool that Sondheim isn't making the same as he's making <laughs> different mistakes every time. Yeah. And like when I criticize passion, I'm criticizing within the context only like against Sondheim's larger body of work and like shows I really love. Like I feel like that distinction is necessary. Like there's still, you know, so much depth and complexity and artistry. And like I think Fosca is really one of the like iconic musical theater characters. You know, she's just such a bizarre character to be the protagonist of it. Well, I mean, I guess she's kind of like the anti-hero. I, I don't really know how you would describe her position in this show, actually. Yeah. I guess Giorgio is the protagonist. Yeah. And I think that, you know, what even confuses that further is having different people reading their letters and, you know, having these different kind of points of views be exposed. Like, it's obvious that Clara is not the protagonist, but it's like, I think that there is this jumble of how are we positioning ourselves as viewers within in this narrative since there are so many positions kind of given to us yeah and i mean even sondheim has said you know we're all fosca we're all Giorgio, we're all clara and i think that definitely comes through so i've always had a hard time with this show for a couple reasons i don't really love the score and i think that's by design there isn't really a lot of variation in it which i i understand why he wrote it that way like it makes total sense but that doesn't mean that i have to like it yeah i tend to prefer a score that like has so many different kinds of music in it that you almost wouldn't think it would be a cohesive score but it ends up working Mm -hmm. um and this is kind of like the opposite of that yeah i think that i had always been kind of turned off by the literalness of some of the lyrics yeah every time i've sort of come back to it i've like liked it and appreciated it more even reading descriptions of it i'm like oh okay i'm on board with that like Ethan Morden in his book writes that the music winds tightly around nameless fears like a predator lying in wait for itself. And the New York Times writes, the music continually circles back on itself as if trying to redefine the terms of an argument that has no resolution. The more I've heard it, like obviously the more certain parts of it have stuck with me and I've really been able to like unpack it a little bit more. But mm-hmm. in Sondheim's book, he uh, kind of like talks about his like feelings about opera and like how he feels like it's difficult for him to sit through opera. Yeah. And I kind of agree. That's how I feel about this. I also think there's sort of this late career Sondheim thing where he's really trying to like push the boundaries of like what is expected of him and what he's done before, which Uh is like, which ends up leading to things like this that are are very polarizing and like sometimes difficult to enter into. In um, Robert McLaughlin's Stephen Sondheim in the reinvention of the American musical, he points to this as Sondheim kind of interrogating the form of the musical comedy. He like calls it the first unfunny uh, musical comedy and points to its 19th century setting, its seriousness, and its darkness to why it was never popular. Um, (laughs) Those are three very good points. (laughs) Through the 60s, through the 90s, you know, there are these like interrogations of what does art mean? What does language mean? And what does narrative mean? And in McLaughlin's book, he really cites Sondheim and Lapine's interrogating the musical theater form and like producing this extremely odd show. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. You know, with Sunday in the Park with George, we already know they're really interested in deconstructing 
what is art. So, you know, of course, when Sondheim's like, I'm going to write a love story, it's like the most <laughs> bizarre, difficult to crack. I mean, some people have cracked it. Well, that's like also what he was saying in the book is that how it is presented, it's like the audience job to like put the narrative together. That's why I feel like with this show, especially people always walk away with different feelings. And But I think the two shows of his that this shares themes with and like musical themes are Sweeney Todd and Follies Mm -hmm. and Sweeney Todd also has this character that has this relentless dark obsession but then you also have Mrs. Lovett's kind of music hall broad comedy influences to balance it out and then with Follies you have the character of Sally who also has this unrealistic fantasy obsession with this man and it ends with her realizing that it was crazy. Like, that is a narrative that is easy for me to understand. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't understand. And I, I think the initial problem that I had with it is that it seems like it is validating Fosca's, you know, like... Her obsession. Her obsession, her... I don't understand why it's saying that true love is love that just totally ignores boundaries. Like, it's just not consensual. Like, ignoring that the object of your love is like, please leave me alone. Mm -hmm. You know, I just, uh, I don't see that as romantic. It just, like, seems like Giorgio's realization that it's like, oh, well, like, actually, no one's ever really loved me like this. Yeah, it's (laughs) like, it feels like narcissism. Mm -hmm. And they actually added a song. That is his revelation, is him saying no, the song No One Has Ever Loved Me. Mm -hmm. And there is an extra part of that song that they cut out of the Broadway version that they did do in London called I Love Fosca where he is like I do love her not the way that she loves me the clarification (laughs) is helpful (laughs) yeah so and I think you know thinking about it now like I always thought that the tragedy of it was supposed to be like you know he realizes he loves her and then she dies but I think the way that I can kind of wrap my mind around it is if they're saying that she is really just like broken him emotionally and has like infected him with her emotional illness and then she dies and he's kind of like left alone and unable to really like reintegrate into normal society. Yeah. <laughs> Which, it like yeah, it feels like a weird uh parable for like It feels AIDS. almost <laughs> like yeah, I I think it is a parable for AIDS and I think Into the Woods is also like passion and Into the Woods are, like, Sondheim's really oblique way of grappling with the AIDS crisis. Yeah. Which makes sense. Like, he's not the type of guy who would do it straight on. (laughs) He would do it in the most He actually ghost wrote Rent. (laughs) Jonathan (laughs) Larson. Uh, In 1994, they released a new translation of the book. I think this might have been the first translation of the book into English. Oh, interesting. Mm -hmm. So the... The review of it I thought was very funny because it literally the opening line is, what a strange book this is. <laughs> you would think that a novel called Passion by an Italian writer would ensnare your emotions. Well, it does and it doesn't. What it does not do is affect you viscerally, notwithstanding that blood and convulsive sex and death are the stuff of it. It is a kind of literary intellectual twister and opposes a puzzle which does nothing to encourage the suspension of disbelief. Is this guy for real? The questions that lurk in this gothic story, insinuating themselves between the reader and an unmediated response are, was passion intended to be a sly soap opera artifice calculated to tease and subvert the family values, aesthetic values, and cultural values of the 19th century bourgeoisie? Or did Tarchetti write out of some deeper, more authentic desire to tell the truth about men and women in love? Generally speaking, I would say the writer's intentions are none of the reader's business. We judge the work, not the worker. But this novel, morbid, macabre, grossly romantic, frustrates us. Is it a parable? A myth? Is it highly colored autobiography disguised as fiction? Is it realism pushed so far that it leaps into the surreal? Is it a sermon on the nature of erotic love, a homily on the limits and the hypocrisies of conventional love and transactional utilitarian unions? 
Was Tarchetti having us on, pulling our strings? It feels as if he was. While I am perfectly willing to believe, indeed I know, that people in love live in extremists in an altered sense of consciousness that makes a mockery of prosaic pieties and renders applied psychological jargon ludicrous, I feel messed with. I feel as if Tarchetti were laughing at me, or perhaps laughing at all our feeble attempts to understand the incredible phenomenon of love, at our puerile attempts to place emotions in such tidy categories as right and wrong, appropriate and inappropriate, or even good and evil. So it's interesting to see how much of that carries over into this adaptation, into this musical adaptation. Yeah, it's actually, that review's so interesting, and, you know, I think going back to the book as the source material for the movie is of interest because in reading um, this like genealogy of melodrama by um, Thomas Elsa Esser, who is you know a film scholar who's studying kind of the Hollywood melodramas of the 1940s and 50s, he points to the obvious connection that like melodrama means music where you know you have this music that's coordinating to the dramas of the dramatic exposition of the plot. But he also talks about how you know even in genre like literary genres how like the melodrama harkens back to the novels of this period where there is this alienation in like the bourgeois norms of these tortured people who don't really fit within like a bourgeois framework and like the exploits of them trying to reconcile themselves being outside of society so i think that it's interesting in looking at it as a adaptation of that novel but even within the text of passion the novel that Giorgio gives Fosca the novels of Rousseau um, who she's reading epitomize this so it is kind of like an interesting link to that yeah that is interesting and it's is this the first time that Sondheim kind of works in melodrama especially not straight melodrama like this is no where there's very little irony there's two hours of extremely heightened emotions I think even what is surprising for Sondheim is that obviously there are like cues to like the period with the music but I think that it's not like pastiche like kind of ironic pastiche to 19th century Italian music. So they started it in workshops which was very well received and then when they brought it to Broadway they had an extremely tough preview period that was like legendarily bad where people were laughing and throughout the preview period they kind of worked on it and cut out the parts that that made them laugh the most which was mostly like when she would just pop up again and I I dug out my DVD because they did a recording of the original cast and I listened to the commentary which was very fun and they really like they're cracking jokes like they really uh, are having a lot of fun with it it seems like have a, a good perspective on the whole experience Donna Murphy talks about how the moment where she really wanted to just be like swallowed by the earth was the scene where they're on the hill together and she collapses and Uh people started clapping. And then when he went back to go get her, people started booing. That's horrible. I know. James Lapine was like, I was sitting behind this woman who was just like laughing the whole time. And I was like, you have to get out of here. (laughs) But they also talk about how like there was no intermission. So there was really no time for people to leave if they didn't like it. Uh Sondheim actually, he has a funny story about the anyone can whistle preview period which was another tough flop from early in his career and he says that someone hissed like in the second row and the leading man gave him the finger and then the guy behind the guy who hissed punched him and they like started having a fist fight 
So at least there were no fist fights at this at these previews. Yeah, if there isn't a fist fight breaking out at your previews, your show is crap. <laughs> <laughs> and they sort of point to maybe part of the issue is that in a big Broadway house, it is easier for you to feel distance from it and kind of laugh at it. Mm -hmm. And you don't really get as enveloped in it as you could. And I think like subsequent productions that have been in smaller venues have really done a lot better and have been considered um, more successful. Yeah, I guess both of us, the productions that we saw were in very small venues. I saw the John Doyle classic stage production about, I guess it was about six years ago. And and I, st I still didn't really like it. And after I saw it, I felt at peace with it where I was like, I just don't get this show. And, you know, maybe it is age where like each time I've come back to it, I've been a little bit older and able to get lost in it a little bit more. I saw multiple references to the original movie calling it a dark comedy. And I, I did watch some clips of Passione d'Amour on YouTube and it does kind of have a different tone to it. Mm -hmm. You know, those Italians, like there is that line of grotesqueness that crosses over into comedy a lot of the time. The Fosca in the movie, I think even Sondheim describes her looking like Nosferatu. Yeah, she's really scary. And they talk about how they had a really hard time making Donna Murphy ugly enough. And like they actually say that in early previews, they were experimenting with her wearing like a bald cap to make her forehead bigger. They were, you know, moving the moles all around. Oh yeah, the mole <laughs> is so yucky. And she actually references the moles in her acceptance speech for best actress. Mm -hmm. For all of you, for your commitment and patience and humor, everyone needs a good mole joke. And, um, uh, and she says that women would come up to her on the street and just, like, grab her and tell her how much they hated Fosca. <laughs> and I think that, you know, I, we actually together have seen Donna Murphy as a Dolly <laughs> Levi. At first, I'm like, oh, like, Donna Murphy is, like, this really talented musical theater comedian. It's weird that she's playing this role, but in a lot of ways, I kind of feel like Fosca's Fosca-ness and the exaggeration of Fosca. It makes a lot of sense that this, like, bold musical theater comedian is playing this role. Yeah, totally. And Sondheim talks, I mean, she gives just an amazing performance. And in the, the DVD commentary, Sondheim talks about how like her performance for Fosca was one of the most fully embodied. Like he said that he didn't have to give her any notes. She just completely understood everything that was going on with this character. Do we want to talk about gender at all? Because I feel like I've seen quotes from Sondheim where he's like, People just couldn't accept that it was uh, an unattractive woman who was doing the pursuing. You know, they love fatal attraction. They love, you know, stuff like Phantom of the Opera, where it's like an ugly guy. I mean, I think that might be part of it. I don't think that's why I have a problem with it. Maybe that is an issue for other people. Well, it is so interesting because like a trope of opera is this like tragically beautiful woman who, you know, like thinking of something like La Boheme, like this tragically beautiful heroine who's dying and sick. Thinking of like <laughs> someone who's like tragically ugly and sick. <laughs> I think that like what for me is a difficult piece of passion is the idea of like Fosca being ugly. Right. The amount that it's mentioned in the lyrics, <laughs> I think it distracts from like what is actually at work and what's interesting about passion. One thing that is kind of apropos of nothing, I think that since I, you know, for the past 15 years, I have been haunted by those horny S's in the Passion <laughs> logo. Because <laughs> the first time I saw Passion, I was about 13. I remember being like, well, why are those S's facing each other? <laughs> so what did you, what were your, uh, what was your reaction to it when you were 13? I think it was like 
difficult to kind of like wrap my head around. I think at that point I had been really deep into Sweeney Todd and Into the Woods. I feel like from Sweeney Todd to Into the Woods to Passion isn't the biggest jump. No. I think I found it a little boring. I also remember being really interested and really captivated by something that I don't think we've really talked about is the soldiers as like the element who are kind of like driving the narrative forward in some sense Mm -hmm. as sort of a Greek chorus that really appealed to me um, as like a storytelling mechanism. I think that the scale of it and the intimacy, and I saw it at like a 60 person black box theater in my hometown, really was like, wow, like a musical can be after only really seeing things like high school productions of like the music man (laughs) i think that like seeing a musical that could be so small and intimate struck me and i think that's kind of the ideal situation Mm -hmm. uh to see it in as a real a real chamber piece it's tough like another part of the way he wrote the score is that there's no room for applause breaks so there's like no way to really relieve the tension which is another thing that like will make people laugh there are plenty of shows that have these really dramatic moments where people laugh because they're uncomfortable Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that there's something to be said about the book and the staging of it that like it just really keeps moving like there are kind of no breaks. I think what makes the show so unique is this epistolary way that the story is kind of told through letters. But I think that that also like means that the work itself is very tightly woven and there's always someone kind of entering a scene or, you know, a scene's being moved by by yeah. the text. I think the it sets up, the musical sets up this false dichotomy in terms of the types of love that Clara and Fosca both have to offer. First of all, Clara means light and Fosca means dark. Little Italian trivia for you there. Where it's like either you have this half-assed all about sex where it turns out she's also married and she doesn't want to leave her life for him. Or you have this insane, nonstop, relentless, obsessive, does not care whether you want it or not. Like, I don't think those are the only two options of what love is, but I guess they are in the world of this show. Yeah. I think that in, I guess in the movie and the novel, Fosca's like appearance is, I guess this is probably more in the novel because I don't agree with her looking masculine in the movie necessarily. I think that that type of forceful extremism feels like such a masculine quality to me. So it is kind of interesting interesting to see Jerry Shea, who I could imagine being extremely forceful, being demonized by this like frail, sickly woman. And I think his character is one of the big issues with it, where he is not really an active character. He doesn't really have a whole lot of agency. And Sondheim actually talks about how in the London revival in 2010, he felt that this was really solved by casting like a much younger man as Giorgio and his innocence, making it easier to believe that he would do this 180 at the end and succumb to her. I think this is the New York Times review of the cast album that sort of sums up the difference between the approach to the movie and the show. While the Broadway show tells the same story and has much of the same look as the film, Mr. Sondheim's lushly romantic music and Donna Murphy's almost beautiful, though sickly Fosca, infuse the fable with a Chekhovian melancholy. Rather than a black comedy that winks at 19th century romantic excess, The show, in taking Fosca's passion and Giorgio's reciprocation much more seriously, aspires toward tragedy. Instead of a grinning gargoyle, Fosca is a homely woman of exceptional sensitivity and unusual depth of feeling. She wins her Prince Charming through a groveling self-abasement that may or may not signify her moral superiority. And then it ends with, As the characters chatter on, defining and redefining the meaning of love, all their conclusions seem at once equally true and equally fatuous. Which I think kind of sums up how 
I ultimately feel about it at this point. No, I think that that perfectly gets it. And I know that there are a lot of people who, the people who love this show, love this show. And it makes me, like, it really makes me want to understand it because the way that they talk about it and the way that it makes them feel, it's like, well, I want to feel that. Yeah, it's something that I will like to see every 10 years, I think, when I get a chance to. You know, it's not your typical musical, and I think that that means for me that I don't enjoy it in the same way that I enjoy a typical musical. I think how melodramatic it is, and there is, like, no sense of irony to it. Right. Um, I think that it makes that's it... A, yeah, that's a big part of it for me, is that, like, it's just all drama. They have a tiny bit of comic relief with the other soldiers, but it is yeah. minuscule. Can't even <laughs> see it with a microscope. Yeah, no, even in the recording of the production you know like in the sunday in the park with george recording you can hear the audience like laugh at certain parts but this i was like kind of being like you can you well they didn't record it with an audience oh they didn't yeah they were they did it after it closed and they were actually saying in the commentary that they thought that it came off very well when filmed because there was no audience which is fine because you don't really need one you don't need them to laugh or clap and it worked really well with all of the close-ups yeah no totally um i guess we can talk about the performance which I also felt like had must have had pre-taped elements to it. Yeah, no, totally. They, I mean, I guess they all got to perform a lot because nobody else was really performing. <laughs> so they start with them in bed doing happiness, which mm-hmm. is like, get these guys naked in there. All this happiness, merely from a glance in the park. So much happiness, so much love. I thought I knew what love was. I wish we might have met so much sooner I could I have given I thought I knew what love was I thought I knew how much I could be we I didn't know what love I'd never was what love was, But now, but now I, I do It's what, what I feel with you And then they do the garden sequence I think that part must have been pre-taped Because otherwise he just got dressed instantly you from my window I saw you on the day that you arrived Perhaps it was the way you walked The way you spoke to your men I saw that you were different then I saw that you were kind and good I thought you understood Yeah, no, I don't think... And that's like a complicated costume. Yeah, and then at the end... Then they show, then they do like your love will live in me, the finale. And I guess that part must have been live because, and I think she's wearing a different costume too. So it's probably like he got dressed while this was happening. This is something I never thought about until we started doing this is the logistics behind these performances. I didn't really realize this, but it was actually illegal for like an unmarried man and an unmarried woman to be alone together. So it kind of uh. charges these scenes of like Fosca and Giorgio being alone. And like in Sunday in the Park with George, too, I love a scene with men gossiping. Yeah, me too. And also, I think it's funny to look at it as a foil to Phantom of the Opera or like to compare the two when the next year, Sunset Boulevard, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Sunset Boulevard, it comes to Broadway, which I also think it mirrors that same type of love story. Oh, totally. I think part of its charm is that it's not for everyone. I also kind of wonder about the longevity of something like Passion. And for some reason, I feel like in 50 years, it's going to be like 
Sondheim work that's like performed a lot. I think so too. I mean, I think it already is. I, yeah, I think I've been surprised given I kind of knew that it didn't have that successful of a Broadway run, how much it's revived. I don't know how I'd let you so far inside my mind. just talk a tiny little bit about Cyrano because we have to. (laughs) Cyrano didn't even perform. It showed a couple of clips. We're not going to talk about it too much. It ran from November 21st, 1993 to March 20th, 1994, which was only 137 performances, so it was already closed. The music was by Ad Van Dyck, book and lyrics by Cohen Van Dyck. I found out no relation. Oh, seriously. Well, yeah, that's like the Dutch version Smith, of Smith. Yeah. yeah. Additional lyrics by Sheldon Harnick. Go figure. Um, <laughs> yeah, what was he doing there? I think, you know, they probably translated it, so they uh-huh. were like, we need someone to kind of punch it up. But everyone, well, not to get ahead of ourselves, but everyone did not like the lyrics. And it was based on the play Cyrano de Bergerac by Edmund Rostand. Based on the classic French play, Cyrano focuses on a love triangle involving the large nose poetic Cyrano de Bergerac, his beautiful cousin Roxanne, and his classically handsome but inarticulate friend Christian de Nouvellette, who, unaware of Cyrano's unrequited passion for Roxanne, imposes upon him to provide the romantic words he can use to woo her successfully in mid-17th century Paris. I always forget that she's his cousin. Yeah, no, I read it in (laughs) high school English class, and we had, like, every day it would be like, okay, like, it's his cousin. (laughs) And everyone's like, no, it's gross. This was also a very lavish musical. It cost about $7 million. It was brought over from Amsterdam. Probably tell from all those Dutch names. Where it was a hit. Once again, Europeans doing the most. Even in the Tony's telecast, they're like, well, while it may have closed here, it's having successful runs around the world. And while you may be thinking, this really sounds like something that Frank Wildhorn should have adapted, he did. Oh, seriously? Yeah. (laughs) And there was also a 1973 Broadway musical version that was also a flop starring Christopher Plummer. But was adapted by Anthony Burgess, who we know from A Clockwork Orange. That's bizarre. Which is very bizarre. But a lot of the reviews compared this one negatively to that version, so that's how much they did not like it. And they also compared the music and tone to Les Mis, which, I also, which sounds about right to yeah. me based on what they show. Well, it is kind of interesting by 94. I feel like Crazy For You was like a really, I guess a couple years earlier, really was like, well, no, this is an American art form. And I think by this point, Cyrano got a little late on the ship over from across <laughs> the Atlantic. I think that people are kind of, they already have their Les Mis, they already have their Phantom, they don't need another lofty, like, lavish, overproduced musical operetta style based on, like, a classic French 
in text. I also think this one just wasn't very good. Yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, in the New York Times review, they said, Cyrano the Musical comes across as a lavishly illustrated study guide with many helpful cipher-like characters in sumptuous historical costumes taking pains to explain who they are and what they're doing. It is not unusual for songs to include phrases like, but let me tell you what happened yesterday, or Roxanne, so you're still here. It must be seven years. And they also said, most of the lyrics actually are simply functional and as unquotable as recipes. <laughs> and John Simon also quoted a lyric that was, Cyrano is tremendous fun, tremendous fun for every nun, which was repeated multiple times. Yuck. Yeah, I think that one of the rules in Not Since Carrie of avoiding a musical flop is don't musicalize works that don't need music. And I think that Cyrano de Bergerac doesn't need music. But not for lack of many different people trying. <laughs> I know. Should we? I think we can wrap it up probably. Yeah. Right? I think we've said all we need to say for this half. Next time, we're going to talk about some revivals. And I think we made an executive decision to save our Angels in America discussion for the 1993 Tony Awards. Yes. So that we can talk about it and its fullness. So I guess that's about it. You can email us at mylittletoniespodcast at gmail.com. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram, and we would like it if you did that. You can uh, rate and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Bye.